0: We don't realise it, but in our daily lives, almost everything is affected by space. If you're eating your breakfast in the morning, a lot of the health of the crops will be determined using space technology and uh, Earth observation. So there's a massive amount of need to get our satellites up into space.
1: That was Scott Hammond, the man behind ambitious plans to turn the UK into Europe's leader in space, all from a launch pad in Shetland. Keep listening for our full featured interview on how the spaceport in Unst is already tempting a new generation to the industry, along with potential new skills for offshore workers. First, welcome to The Sushi, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'm joined by my regular panel comrades, Adele Merson and Derek Healy. We'll start where we left off last week, back at the post office. If you haven't already heard it, I'd encourage you to listen back to that. It's a powerful interview with the daughter of a sub-postmistress from Fife who died before finding out she was right all along and the post office itself was to blame for so much wrongdoing. Since then, the big update was the Lord Advocate appearing in the Scottish Parliament to say what is going to happen here or not. The brief technical part is prosecutions in England were done through the post office in this instance but that didn't happen in Scotland where convictions were through the independent crown office which of course is a totally different judicial system to south of the border the scottish government seems to be pursuing the idea that the uk government could legislate on its behalf to maybe overturn convictions in scotland which is fairly unusual in itself but the the lord advocate who's in charge of scotland's prosecution system was saying they have no idea how many people really were victims of miscarriages of justice here and they should appeal individually through the courts. So it continues to be a work in progress and the one thing I think we can all agree on is it will not be solved anytime soon. Derek Healy was covering the human face of this with a piece in the Sunday Post this week. What's happening to ordinary folk while this saga continues Derek?
2: Well I think that's a thing because it's easy to get tied down in the sort of procedural rows or who's, who's responsible for what and that's at the heart of this are people who have been really, really wronged. Um, so my colleague Janet Boyle at the Sunday Post wrote a really strong story and um, I think highlighted us really, really well this week. Um, so this is about Phil Cowan and his wife Fiona who were running a post office in Parsons Green in Edinburgh. Um, now, they, they had an absolutely horrendous time. were obviously falsely accused. Um, I think Fiona had people spitting at her in the street um, just an, an absolutely terrible time. Um, she died in her sleep in 2009, age 47, after an accidental overdose um, with antidepressants and alcohol left behind two young boys. And Phil Cowen has been fighting for years to try and first of all clean his wife's name and also to kind of push the campaign us, get politicians to interact with them and take this forward. Um one of the kind of interesting, I think, political points that we've seen over the last few weeks has been kind of politicians turning on each other and trying to say where the blame should go. And of course I think it seems that like the blame is kind of on everyone really. This is a scandal that was becoming more and more apparent. And different politicians were trying to avoid taking responsibility or maybe not quite looking as hard as they should be at this. Um one of the things that's that's in this article written by Janet is um, Phil Cowan saying he wrote to his local MP, Deirdre Brock, um, on a number of occasions, uh, went to her office, also contacted Nicola Sturgeon and other leading politicians. And I should say that Deirdre Brock and the SNP say they have no record of him being ignored, and they can't understand why it wouldn't have been taken forward. And indeed, Deirdre Brock was one of the people who were signing Um, different kind of motions at Westminster at that time calling for action on this. But I think what it highlights is across the board, people were failed here. I think they were failed by politicians. I think they were failed by the wider media as well, because there are questions to ask about how people knew the details of this for years and years and years and years. And then it comes to be a TV programme that really kicks this on. Um, I don't think it was picked up, maybe in the way it should have been. So, yeah, right, right at the heart of this, while all these kind of rows and debates are going on about who should take responsibility, you've got people like Phil and Fiona who are right at the centre of this. Um, and Phil, obviously, is still looking for this to be taken forward in Answers. And there have been quite a few
1: examples around, particularly in light of the ITV drama, which has, of course, captured the public imagination in a way that other campaigners haven't managed to do so far we're all covering various examples of people who are trying to clear their name or or have sadly, of course, died before they had a chance to even know they were right, which brings us back to last week's episode. But um, I mean, there will be people listening here who will know what it's like. There's probably people who still haven't come forward. And that was one of the things that the Lord Advocate was saying as well in Parliament yesterday. I think it's 70 or so. It's less than 100, I think, people that were through the Horizons um, scheme perhaps caught up in this. but. Only a small number have come forward. So that was another problem the Lord Advocate saying, if, if there is a problem, you'll have to come forward. But also they can't issue something like a blanket pardon because there may well be people in that number who, where Horizon was just a part of it and they, they may well be guilty of, of a crime that's that, that can't just be wiped away. So, I mean, what happens next, Derek? Do we just keep listening for Parliament to find a way? Are, are the Scottish government just trying to make the UK government now deal with the mess and come up with a legislative plan and
2: is there is there a way of breaking the
1: deadlock so we don't hear more stories like you you've been covering
2: well i think was just just on your point there about people not coming forward you've got to remember as well that a lot of people had their lives totally destroyed by this yeah so in fiona's case you know obviously fiona is, is now dead is no longer with us um phil is living abroad i think he's in thailand i think it is but he's he's not living in the uk anymore and a lot of people had kind of similar experiences where the lives they had and the towns or the villages they lived in were totally destroyed and uprooted by this and have left. So the idea that you know maybe they'd want to come back and raise all this again when they've moved on with their lives and tried to put it behind them, I think that's probably behind quite a lot of this. In terms of the way forward, I really don't think we're going to see an end to this anytime, or, a, or a proper way forward on this anytime soon. It seems like something that's going to be a lot of wrangling and a lot of argument between oh, what we're we doing to do. I mean, it's, it's such a complicated process when it comes to this now. Um, I think it is going to be a protracted mm-hmm. situation, unfortunately, because it's such a serious subject and it needs to be taken so seriously in terms of, I mean, how on earth do you begin to redress completely upending people's lives like this? You know, again, with people who have died or people who have moved away and how, how, how do you go about making things right? And I think that is going to take so long and be such a muddle to sort out that it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. Okay,
1: well, this was all put to First Minister Hamza Youssef at First Minister's Questions last week, and it will absolutely no doubt come up again um, the next time he's in front of MSPs to face questions, especially given the Lord Advocate's appearance with her statement. Adele, you you were speaking to the First Minister um, a couple of days ago in Aberdeen. This is one problem that he's facing, is there another tricky week ahead for him?
3: I think he's got yeah, a tricky, tricky 12 months ahead of him. <laughs> he was in Aberdeen where he met, I think he did a number of visits, but he met senior figures in oil and gas ahead of the government sort of publishing its energy and just transition plan. And he was very critical of the UK government's plan to introduce new licenses. I think that's going to become a big talker and th- and, and and something you'll have to answer a lot of questions on as we go into the general election, because obviously the mm. SNP and the UK, uh, the Conservative Party are at odds on that one. Um, in terms of, yeah, I think he's facing a number of other challenges. We saw this week, I think, two different polls which showed the SNP is set to lose around, I think, more than half of its seats at the mm. general election with a heavy swing to Labour. We did a kind of our own story for The Courier on what that will mean in Fife, for example, where you'll see they could lose, it's predicting that they'll lose all their SNP seats there and that the SNP and Labour will be tied across Scotland. So that's got to be a major headache for him, thinking how does he turn things around there? And then I think also as we start, we're quite, what are we, two weeks into the the new year now, but I think as the weeks and months go by, we're going to start to also see a lot of anger directed his way or certainly his government's way around the budget and how unpopular that's been. So just, um, you know, the other week we had a SNP minister up in Aberdeen where there was discussion around business rates, for example. So I think you're going to have hospitality industry pushing him hard to, to look at yeah. supplying some kind of relief around there. And then we start to get into the season where councils set their budgets. Again, we're going to see a lot of unpopular decisions being taken and while the anger might be you know put on councils it'll also be directed at the government for the situation that we're in and I think that'll be quite a pattern throughout the year is the government basically holding its hands up and saying we don't have the money to do xyz and I don't think that'll put them in a very popular place ahead of the election.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the the tight budgets and things like that. Of course, one of Hamza Yousaf's uh, near neighbours, Shona Robertson in Dundee, the Deputy First Minister and the Finance Secretary, we were just actually writing a story about her defence of going on a, a wee ski trip, of having set this difficult budget, um, saying that it's not, a, you know, it's it's not fair that people are in saying that she shouldn't be allowed to go on holiday just because she's um, come up with had to, had to put forward a very difficult budget. You can read her own words there rather than me interpreting it here. Um, It's on the Courier pages just now. But um, sort of sticking in that neck of the woods, El Jamel, Sam El Jamel, the Tayside doctor, the disgraced surgeon who um, has disappeared off the face of the earth, it would seem, but left dozens of people with alleged life-changing injuries at his hands. Um, We've reported in depth in the past about how the government finally U-turned and said there will be a public inquiry into the, into all everything surrounding LGM's employment and Tayside successive health secretaries not wanting to really lift the bonnet on that one. You were asking the first minister, when are we actually going to see this this public inquiry that was um, given a given the thumbs up in September? Uh, Derek, just picking up that thought, is this another example where politicians think they've got a quick win? They say yes to a public campaign. And then they just hope they've got a load of breathing
2: space and it'll kind of go away. Yeah, I feel like my job on this podcast is to talk about justice taking far longer than it actually should. Um, that seems to be the case for everything this week. Yeah, um, Yeah. I mean, so you've got Hamza Yousaf being unable to confirm that it's even going to happen this year, which is an incredible situation. When you think back to when this was announced, I think back in September that this was going to happen. People have already waited for so long for answers on this, it's been such a long road, and um, we've kind of covered the ins and outs of it all the way through in, in the Courier. It's been a really, really long battle to get this inquiry kind of over the line. It's going to happen. Do you know, I think it would be such a mistake if it isn't in place by the end of this year. I really think it would be because people have waited so long for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's worth saying that Hamza Yousaf has not ruled out that it's going to happen this year. He just wasn't able to say definitively exactly when it's going to happen. So let's hope that that's... Politicians speak for (laughs) it's imminent and I can't say yet, but yeah, I just, people have waited far too long already for this. And if you listen to the victims of it, you know, their lives have been destroyed by it in some cases in a lot of cases. And I think they were horrified at the idea that this might not happen next year after all their campaign and and that feeling of relief, finally knowing, okay, there's an inquiry coming. And there are very serious questions that still need answers to some of this stuff Um, on how this was allowed to go on for so long and the way it was handled by several key individuals as well. So, yeah, there's there's answers needed and let's hope it's Mm going to come very soon. Okay,
1: well, I think it's time for liftoff now with our featured interview. And back to you, Adele. Can you maybe start the countdown by telling us why you were speaking to a man about spaceports this week?
3: It was a little bit different from the usual political back and forth but yeah the uh, MPs on the Scottish Affairs Committee have basically been looking at the work that's being done across Scotland's space sector so one of the main projects is Saxoford's Shetland Island site it's on the small island of Unst and that's going to become the sorry it is has become the UK's first licensed spaceport for vertical rocket launches so we'll be allowed to i think the permits allow it to have about 30 launches a year that will be used to take satellites up into space and although it's arguably a massive story for somewhere like Shetland it's also you know got wider wider impacts i don't think there's um there hasn't ever been a rocket launched into orbit from western europe so it really it does mark a sort of opportunity for scotland to become a bit of a world leader and that's in in the small space launch sites um or certainly a european leader anyway Mm. and yeah i i got the chance to to speak to scott from saxiford about a little bit more about what the impact could be in terms of local jobs and what it might mean for children growing up in the area and yeah it made for an, an interesting chat
1: okay well adele you started by asking scott when we're going to see rocket launches start in shetland
0: in this industry, if anybody promises you a date, they're lying. But I'm very confident we're going to have a launch in the summer. And now that could be we've got uh, a number of companies in the, in the running for that. We've got Rocket Factory Augsburg, a German company. We've got ABL Space Systems, an American company. We've got High Impulse, another German company. And you may even see Skyrora, a company who are based out of Edinburgh. So uh, I'm pretty confident we're going to see a launch. I won't promise you which rocket's going to be.
3: And do you think the spaceport has the capacity to be a leader in Europe, across Europe?
0: Uh, Absolutely. And I said this on Monday, I was at the Parliamentary Committee. Um, We we cannot just think in terms of Scotland or the UK, we've got to think in terms of Europe. Um, Europe only has one vertical launch spaceport. It's over just uh, in South America, in French Guiana, and that's where the big uh, Ariane 5 and soon to be Ariane 6 launch from. So it has nowhere else to actually put its uh, uh, rockets uh, and satellites up into space. Last year, America launched about 160 rockets. Uh, Europe managed three. So we really need to have that access to space. And, you know, we don't realise it, but in our daily lives, almost everything is affected by space. You know, we've all got our mobile phones. You know, they rely on space technology. But if you're eating your breakfast in the morning, A lot of the health of the uh, crops will be determined using space technology and uh, Earth observation. So there's a massive amount of need to get our satellites up into space. And currently, Europe doesn't have that access. So we're building three launch pads. At the moment, there's one other launch pad being built up in Andoya, in the very far north of uh, Norway. There may be a second one up there. So effectively, we're going to have 60% of Western European capacity, all here in Shetland. So absolutely, we really do expect ourselves to be very much a European spaceport, so much so that we have offices over in Munich. And that's where you know we do a lot of our business development, because that's where a lot of our customers are going to come from, both rocket manufacturers and satellites.
3: And I imagine there's no shortage of individuals who want to work in the sector. It's a very exciting <laughs> sector. Just if you could explain, you know, will the spaceport create any jobs for local people at all, or will most of these people come internationally? And I'd also be interested if there's any, I believe there's some overlap with some of the skills in, say, the oil and gas industry, which is a big employer for a lot of our readers, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, and yes, everybody gets excited as soon as we put space on the front of uh, any job, uh, you know, um, advert. Uh, people do get very excited. The, the downside, or the uh, of that, is people think that they can't be involved. And that's entirely wrong. We still need uh, HR consultants. We still need accountants. We still need people to do cash flow. All the things you'd have in any normal business, we still need. Um, and we, we you know, are looking um, for those sorts of people as we expand. Now, yes, there are differences in how we run our business and um you know, the, the space industry. But it's, it, you know, it's the analogy, again, is really back to the aviation industry. Very, very similar. So we've got all of that breadth. You then come on to perhaps the more specialised roles, which could be the range operations manager or the range safety manager. Those uh, we've got two gentlemen at the moment. They're both based. Uh, they come into the Granton and Spay office, which is where we've got some um Uh, headquarters and they both live in the Highlands and we'll be expanding that team and we very much look for local people and by local generally Scotland and the Highlands now there is without doubt an issue for us to I can't go out and just put an effort out for a, a space range uh, manager because they just do not exist in this country. You know, all of our people are the very first people in the United Kingdom to ever do that job. So we look at what their skill sets are, their experiences have been uh, coming to us. And you, you talk about oil and gas. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of uh, crossover there. So we use a lot of high-pressure gases, a lot of quite complex uh, chemicals, so does oil and gas. We do health and safety, so does oil and gas. So there is a massive amount of crossover, but we very much look at the person. What is the type of person? We need You know, people that really get up and go and want to make this happen and who are excited by what we're trying to do. And then, okay, what are your background? Uh, what skill sets can you bring? Uh, yeah, I. I I'm an example. Six years ago, I knew nothing about space. Uh, my background is aviation, but I've been able to bring those skill sets to doing this job.
3: And are there estimates in terms of how many jobs you think could be created?
0: So there are estimates that you put into um, the planning uh, application. Um my problem with that is it's very formulaic. It's all they do is they say, okay, you're going to invest X amount of money. That means you're going to create maybe three, stroke six full-time uh, employment are there. That then has a knock-on effect to further down the route. Now, what they were quoting in there is, you know, between you know uh, 100 to 200 direct employees, and then throughout uh, the Highlands and Scotland, probably up to about another 600. But I, I think. You've got to look at, uh, across the whole piece here, Adele. We've already given work to a, a company up in Shetland. There, there's a lot of uh, small engineering firms up in Lerwick. There's one called LEF, and they've already do, doing some work both for us and for Rocket Factory Augsburg. Now, first off, they're not a space company, but now they are because they're doing stuff for space companies. But what we're able to do there is, as there is perhaps a bit of a downturn in their demand for oil and gas business, we can start to give a demand for space business. So it's not just creating the jobs. It's also securing existing jobs. So, you know, I think it's a a really, I don't like to say it's going to create X number. But is it going to have an effect? Absolutely. And a very positive effect.
3: That was sort of my next question. What what kind of impact do you think this could have locally? I I noticed that you told MPs that you've got a hope that young people, for example, would be inspired to work in space in the future because they can actually see it sort of happening in front of them in their local uh, islands.
0: Uh, absolutely. So. Um... Shetland, um, they, they, their education system is, is subtly different. They sort of stay all in like the local school till they're about 16 or so. And one of the schools has completely changed its uh, syllabus to be everything around space. So when they're doing maths, they use space as the issue. They're doing geography, they use space. And that's to inspire those children. So you can imagine, you, you know, you a young child, a boy or a girl growing up now in Shetland. There's going to be a spaceport. Well, there is a spaceport now in Shetland that they could go and work for, and they could do a whole variety of jobs there, uh, go ranging from I say, accountancy up to even taking over my job eventually, uh, uh, you know, operations director, and that's what you're offering. Now it's going to take time, Adele, because this is a brand new industry we're creating here. But uh, I, you know, I, I'm absolutely convinced the opportunities for young people, certainly in Shetland and in the Highlands, is amazing.
3: And there have been some concerns around the potential impact on local wildlife. Have have these been taken into account?
0: Yes. So um, we have to do a lot of environmental assessments, both to get the planning permission and also as part of the uh, spaceport license from the uh, Civil Aviation Authority. So. Within that, there's a whole uh, lots of duties that are put onto us that we don't launch at certain times of year because it's in the bird breeding season. And we've done a lot of work to improve the uh, habitat for sea otters and that sort of thing. So, um, yes, uh, you know, the, it is put on, on top of us that we need to do these um, uh, these duties to make sure that our impact on the environment is as little as possible. But again, it is something that, you know, we take very seriously anyway. You know, we are building on an island um, and we have a duty of care and responsibility to all the islanders who live up there to, you know, tread as lightly as possible. And that's very much what we're trying to do. We have even seen already now it's difficult because of bird flu, but because we've been more active on the site, we've actually seen some ground nesting birds come back to the site because we're scaring off the raptors. So, you know, it, it's it's always a sort of, you know, a, a variation there. But um, yes, we, we've done a lot of work on both bird breeding and on otters.
3: And are both governments, in your opinion, giving enough support to the space sector? Or could they be doing more?
0: Uh, I would love to see more from both. And as again, as I said, down in Parliament, the it's it's not a devolved activity. So the Scottish government has limited uh, input and powers over it, but they do have areas that they can really help us. So one of them is the Marine Directorate, which has to give a licence for us to deposit anything into the sea anywhere in the world. Um, uh, now, that Marine Directorate was set up in the early 2000s it was never set up with us in mind. It was set up for oil and gas and fishing. So, you know, they, they need to start thinking in a s- slightly different way of how do they license what we want to do. And we would certainly like to see the Scottish government sort of start to give some political top cover to the um, the civil servants and the public servants there to allow them to interpret things, you know, um, in a way that is more advantageous for business and to do things quickly. For the UK government, it's far more about the international um, agreements. One of our launchers, when they launch, they will drop a stage in the Pacific Ocean. That's the scale of uh, these sort of operations. Now, you know, Shetland Space Centre, Saxon Ford, can't. It's difficult for us to go and negotiate with Hawaii Uh, about dropping certain stages near to them. So we need the UK government to be doing that, to be talking to other governments to get a lot of these uh, agreements in place to enable what we want to do. We also need them to help us um, smooth the way for all of our clients to get to site. Um, outside of Skyrora, they're all coming from either Europe or America. And we need to think of ways to make sure that there's there's not a lot of red tape put in the way for them to have to overcome before they even get to the launch site.
3: And just finally, let's just say we're talking one year from now, what would you like to have achieved at the spaceport? What would you like to have seen happen?
0: Oh, Well, one year from now, I'd like, uh, well... But by then, we'll have completed two pads. We'll have uh, two rocket halls, two clean rooms. We'll have all of our tracking telemetry systems up. But basically, I would like to have seen two minimum launches by then. Uh, up it, Maybe one suborbital, which is a, a launch that goes into space but doesn't achieve orbit, and one orbital. So, uh, And I'm confident we're going to do that. I really am, with the caveat of don't trust anybody in this business who gives you a definite date.
1: Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks to Scott Hammond for speaking to us, to Adele Merson and Derek Healy, along with producer Morvan McIntyre. We'll be back next week for more. Until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, Sunday Post, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.